Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education, where we aim to make you know it all about education law, policy, and practice that affect you. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com forward slash know it all. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I am a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Our sponsor for this episode of Know It All is The Root DC, part of the Washington Post family. The Root DC focuses on news for and about African Americans in the DC region. You'll be able to find episodes of Know It All and my blog posts after each show on my website and on the Root DC website at WashingtonPost.com forward slash local forward slash the Root DC. Also, in partnership with the Root DC and the Interactivity Foundation, we'll be hosting monthly community discussions about education at DC public facilities beginning this Saturday, March 16th, when we will discuss schools and discipline at the ARC in Southeast DC. So if you're local, join us. Lunch will be provided. And now for today's show, No More Kids in Jail, a holistic look at student discipline. I read a piece recently in Education Week about a student who received 298 detentions in one school year and a number of suspensions, too, for having his shoes untied, for showing up late to class, for skipping after-school periods and disrespecting teachers. This was at a charter school in Chicago. I also read recently about an eight-year-old girl who was handcuffed and jailed for two hours for throwing a temper tantrum. That was at a public elementary school in Illinois. Students in Texas and California received tickets from police for showing up late to class. Nowadays, student discipline and the criminal justice system are intertwined. We can't really talk about student discipline these days without also talking about the juvenile justice system, the criminal justice system for children and the racial disparities between children who who become involved with the juvenile justice system and those who don't are stark. These disparities have come to be known as disproportionate minority contact, or DMC. Children of color are more likely to be incarcerated and to serve more time than white youth, even for the same category of offense. My guest today is David Domenici, Executive Director of the Center for Educational Excellence and Alternative Settings whose mission is to radically improve the quality of education provided to our nation's most at-risk and underserved students. David is also the co-founder of the Maya Angelou Public Charter Schools, which began with the Maya Angelou Academy at a juvenile detention facility here in D.C. Good morning to you, David. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Allison. Thanks for having me. Will you start by telling us about the center? What, what is it that you do? Uh, We're a small group, and we primarily provide assistance to state juvenile justice agencies around the country who are committed to improving the quality of their schools inside of their long-term secure uh, facilities for kids who have been adjudicated delinquent. Um, We help them try to work on policy matters that we think will lead to uh, better educational opportunities, and then we also provide fairly hands-on a technical assistance uh, to help principals, teachers, administrators um, have a better toolkit so they can uh, do a substantially better job in the classroom helping kids get engaged, helping kids work on critical skills, and helping kids get to a place where they can be successful when they leave. 
We also provide support to uh, alternative schools, um, organizations running alternative schools in the communities that want to make their schools better, uh, meaning places, again, of higher engagement, higher rigor, but nonetheless the places that will be attractive uh, to kids who've uh, either dropped out, quit, or um, been disengaged in traditional schools. And we do a little work in short-term detention facilities, um, again, where kids are going pre-trial um, and by law have to have to run schools. And, and so we also help some uh, schools, counties, districts that uh, run detention facilities try to improve the quality of those schools. Great. Will you talk a little about your your path to where you are and how you began as a as a criminal defense attorney and how you ended up doing what you're doing now? Well, sure. I um, I uh, taught school for one after graduating from college. I I worked in New York for a couple of years and I taught uh, school at a inner city Catholic school in D.C. for a year. Went to law school and. Uh, while I was teaching school, caught, kind of caught the school bug. And so even while I was in law school, I started doing a lot of work with teenagers from the, in Washington, D.C. In the middle of law school, I uh, did an internship at the Public Defender Service, and I, I really got to know about kids who had been kicked out of school, dropped out of school, were having problems with the law, and started to realize, candidly, how poorly the school system and the other systems were that were supposed to be helping these young folks uh, develop the skills they need. Uh, instead, these, these schools and the systems they were in were, were trapping them and were uh, doing nothing more than sort of pushing them along the route uh, towards ultimately ending up in adult facilities. So I practiced law for a couple of years, and, um, but the bug didn't really leave me. And after uh, a few years of practicing law, uh, I met uh, who, someone, James Foreman Jr., who's become my dear friend, and we talked about trying to do something. He was a public defender at the time, and we talked about doing something really different and innovative for kids, and so we uh, started initially an after-school job training program for kids coming out of the court system. They were more or less all of James's clients, and we opened a little pizza delivery restaurant and worked all hours of the day and night delivering pizzas with kids and had a lot of fun and did some good, but we couldn't create a lot of institutional change because kids were going to not very good schools during the day, and we didn't run a school. So after a couple years of that, we quit our jobs and started a little school for kids in the court system that was called See Forever, and we then converted that into a charter school, which was a way for us to get some credibility, to get public funding. So for many years, I was the principal of the Maya Angelou Public Charter School, which was a, initially a very small school for kids coming out of the court system, and is now a small network of alternative schools in D.C., where we work with kids that are court-involved, foster care kids, kids who, again, just haven't been successful in past schools, kids who want a small nurturing place where they can be successful. Um, about seven years ago, the district asked for organizations to come run the school inside of their long-term juvenile correctional facility called Oak Hill, and we responded to that request and felt really, really lucky to be asked to come run the school out at Oak Hill. So for four years, I was the principal at the school at what we called the Maya Angelou Academy, which was the school inside of D.C.'s long-term correctional facility. Then about a year and a half ago, I left that job to start the center so we could try to take some of the lessons we learned running the academy and try to help other folks around the country improve their schools. So 
you and I have both seen um, stories similar to the ones that I mentioned in the beginning um, of of students, usually students of color, who are kicked out of school, even arrested for minor infractions, chewing gum, showing up late to class, wrong school uniform, um, disrespect. Will you talk about the connection between student discipline in school and the juvenile justice system? Uh, sure. I think the, the examples that you've used, um, they still exist, and they exist primarily in a fairly small subset of schools in our country, um, you know, mostly but not exclusively in large urban school districts uh, where, where administrators have become um, often uncomfortable um, figuring out thoughtful, creative ways to engage young people, help young people develop the right skills so they can be successful in school and at work, and instead have gotten more comfortable with the notion that when kids either misbehave or are disrespectful or do things that don't exactly align with a very strict code of conduct, uh, administrators call the police or utilize their school resource officer. And Again, in large urban settings, this means this is happening a lot to low-income kids of color, um, and they end up, uh, the community resource officers, police officers end up getting involved in all sorts of sort of basic uh, teenage or even younger than teenage behavior um, where they quite simply shouldn't be involved. And once that kid um, gets arrested one time, goes down to the juvenile facility, at, at a minimum they've missed a day or two of school, their parents have had to get involved They've, they've gotten sort of what we would call papered at least one time, and that, that's a bad thing, and that sort of oftentimes leads to a, a series of further incidents. Um, Worst-case scenario, uh, uh, they don't just go down to the de detention center or the police department for the day. They go down and end up staying a few days because they get charged with assault. Um, but that assault uh, uh, sometimes, again, is, is two kids getting in a fight over lunch, which should be handled by a dean of students, um, it might be a kid, again, cursing at a principal because uh, they're frustrated and mad, and that should result in a t conversation with a guidance counselor and maybe a follow-up discussion with the principal and maybe, maybe some other consequence. But instead, um, tempers flare. Uh, people resort to using the convenient answer, which is a, a community resource officer, police officer. And once that officer is involved, that officer will generally say, I've been asked to get involved, and my job is to handle the situation using my sort of law, law authority uh, enforcement perspective, which means um, when people punch each other, that's an assault. Uh, when, for many folks, <laughs> what, what we think is when teenagers wrestle, which isn't great, um, it's a fight, and it should be broken up, and people should talk about it, and there should be some basic consequences with counselors and family members and try to help kids get back on track. Um, so I think that's some of what's happening here is that we've gotten to the point where we have just too many people, law enforcement folks inside of our schools, and once they're there, it, it takes a lot of discipline um, for schools to try to manage student behavior in positive, productive ways on their own, and it, it takes a lot of discipline for uh, police officers to step back and, and really encourage and support schools to help manage discipline and manage behaviors appropriately and, and only get involved in those situations where they should, which would probably be things like uh, guns and weapons and 
you know, serious, serious gang incidents and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I would say that it, it certainly is true that discipline practices in schools where um, the student population is mostly white or very diverse and middle or higher income looks very different a lot of times than discipline practices in schools that are racially isolated or that have a very high enrollment of low-income students. We also have to acknowledge that it's not as simple, usually, as that teachers have the worst intentions and want to remove the black and brown children from their classrooms. Um, We talked last week about how children need healthy emotional attachments to adults in order to grow into healthy adults themselves. I I have a two-part question for you. Um, The first is, how do you encourage the adult educators in any setting to seek healthy attachment to, to their students first? And then second, how do you cultivate healthy adult child attachments with children who may have experienced significant trauma or who may have had little or no adult attachments and are completely peer-oriented? Um, uh, t- tough question. <laughs> Let's, on the first one, um, we got to get our teachers trained, and we also have to be thoughtful about who we select uh, to come work in our schools. Um, at the Maya Angelou schools, uh, we work really hard during our interview process, during our selection process, to find teachers who uh, see their mission, yes, as uh, it being essential that they have the skills and the desire to help kids develop their academic skills so they can be successful, but we also look and ask and probe on this other issue. Are you uh, an adult who sees a primary role in the classroom as one of who's going to work to develop thoughtful, engaging, caring, trustful relationships with your kids. And there's plenty of research that supports the notion that you just have to develop engagement and thoughtful, appropriate relationships between teachers and kids if you're going to ultimately get them to push and uh, and tackle their weaknesses. People used to ask me a lot when I was a math teacher, basketball coach, principal, who knows what, about developing good relationships with kids and and often times I was just pretty basic in my response saying it takes a lot of work you have to really really try and you have to get your priorities set you're not you're not there to become friends with a kid for the sake of being become friends you're there because when you ask a 17 year old who can barely read to be honest about that and do the really hard work of working on his basic reading skills you need some capital, and, the, and your capital is that you work together and you've gotten through difficult situations and you've supported him even when he didn't behave the way you wanted to. You tried really hard to give him good examples of how he could manage his behaviors better, and you stuck with him. And then you can go tackle the fact that he can't read well and he's embarrassed about it and he's mad about it. Um, but he comes clean with you, and then you can help him address these academic skills. If you can, first off, get get to the point where he where where he knows you're going to stick with him. Your second question, uh, again, I don't, I'm I'm not a, a trained psychologist or a social worker. I've just worked with kids a lot. Um, I think the big issue there is you have to not quit on kids, and you have to be really straight with kids. You can't 
become somebody you're not. Um, kids see through that. I think kids really, really respect and come to trust adults who they know, again, have their best interests, who won't quit on them, and who are going to stick with them. When we visit state schools in these correctional facilities all around the country, we do survey, we do focus groups with kids, and we ask kids, do your teachers care about you? And they say yes or no, oftentimes no, unfortunately. And then, but for the ones that say yes, we ask them, how do you know your teacher cares about you? And rarely, if ever, do the kids say uh, things like, because they're nice to me or they bring me treats. What they say is, they... Um, they really help me develop my skills, and they don't just give us stupid work. They give us real work, they push us, they want us to succeed, and we don't understand things, they help us. And if you're a teacher and your children are, and students are not succeeding in your class, they're frustrated, and you show them that you care and that you're willing to come over next to them, really dig in and help them uh, improve and work on things, They'll start to trust you. It's just a long haul. Sometimes it's just a long haul. Mhm. So, in in a correctional setting, in a correctional facility uh, for juveniles, how should educators and how do educators meet out effectively meet out student discipline? Um, you know, working in correctional settings is tricky because. Um, you are there as teachers and sort of the instructors, and you're you're operating in a larger context of a facility or an institution. So it, it's an it's a tricky situation. You're oftentimes a teacher in a class, and there's 15 young men or women in the class, and there also are two sort of correctional officers or in in, in centers that are that are more treatment focused, sort of uh, treatment support program staff who are in there, kind of watching and in, watching your every move, and if, if possible, working with you. Uh, again, at the Maya schools, we try to do this pretty clearly, which is we established a set of expectations for what we expected for young people when they came into the school. We try to be both flexible, but on an ongoing basis, moving towards our goal, which is we're not trying to produce robots. We're not trying to produce young people who all either dress a certain way or don't dress a certain way as compared to helping people develop those skills that they need to be successful in school and beyond. And if you can stay focused on things like that as compared to whether a kid has his shirt tucked in or not, you can make a lot more progress, I think. Um, so at the Maya Angelou Academy, we came up with a set of school values. We talk about those values. We coach kids on those values. We really, really incentivize and reward kids for, for demonstrating those values through a PBIS-type PBIS system. And you really focus on making sure that when kids are doing, demonstrating behaviors that you know um, are important to them and their future and important to making your class successful, you acknowledge it, you praise them, and on an ongoing basis you work on that. We have frequent um, award ceremonies. There's constant opportunities to recognize young people who are doing the right thing. When kids don't behave, again, there have to be consequences. And even in secure settings, kids can either, um, again, they can have timeouts. They can uh, have to be removed from the classroom and talk with a counselor. If they flip over a desk and, you know, uh, take, a, take a desk and throw it into the wall, they, you know, then usually what will happen, the teacher will ask for support from the secure or the secure care staff, and the student will need to be removed. And 
just like in some other school, they're going to need to end up in some place, whether it's detention or suspension for a, a brief period of time so that they can try to get themselves back together and get ready to learn again. From a school's perspective, it's not that much different than if a kid had to go home for the day. When that kid is going to come back and the school needs to be involved in a thoughtful reintegration process, that means you need to be talking with the residents or the pod or the unit manager where the young person goes in the evening. You need to try to make sure that everybody who works with that kid is on the same page, the school staff, the secure care staff, his mental health team, and then everybody needs to be on the same page when it comes to getting that young person back into the classroom the next day or that afternoon, talking about what expectations could be, what went wrong, how would they reconsider, and, and how are we going to try to make things work next time so that when we get mad or frustrated, we're not going to you know, flip the chair over. Mm-hmm. You mentioned PBIS, positive behavioral interventions and supports. Will you describe that a little bit more, kind of what the what the rewards look like for especially older children who you're you're trying to incentivize good behavior? Sure, I think um, so. PBIS is at its basic. It's a it's a frame of reference that focuses on positives. Really tries to provide really clear expectations for young people so that they, um, again, get constant feedback when they are doing the right thing and get sort of incentivized and and a lot of recognition for doing things that make sense. It also provides sort of a triage strategy so that for young people who are not meeting those standards, there's sort of increasing level of engagement and support from a mix of staff who can help the student sort of re-engineer and try to manage his or his behavior in a way that will be more successful and also help analyze what some of the root causes of misbehavior might be. At the Maya Angelou Academy, where, which, which is a high school, many of our incentives, uh, people said, would not work for high school kids, and they shrugged their shoulders and said, this is silly. Um, you guys are trying to run a middle school in the middle of a youth correctional facility, and, which, which we were not. Um, but, you know, teenagers respond, I think, to a lot of the same positive messages that, other, that, that, that younger folks respond to if you do them appropriately. At the Maya Angelou Academy, we every month celebrate student success. We have a dean's list. We have a most improved list. We have a student leader of the month. Um, we have a student who represents, uh, you know, the most creative student of the month. All these r- rewards are incentivizing kids to demonstrate behaviors that that we want. At the Maya Angelou Academy, like I said, we have a series of values. There are RISE values, respect, responsibility, integrity, safety, and empathy. And when students demonstrate those values, which are articulated everywhere in the building, teachers give students literally like a card or a star that has that says congratulations. Those get posted on a big wall and it's there for everybody to see. And when students, students are quite simply, it's human nature. You end up being proud of the fact that you have, you're, you're very visibly recognized in the school. And what you slowly want to happen is you want the culture of the school to become a culture of high achievement and a culture of pro-social behaviors. And if you commit to this and you believe it's possible as compared to the opposite, then that is what happens schools, even in a youth correctional settings, become places where students want to achieve. They want to get on the dean's list. They want to be a part of the book club. 
they also want to win the award, the Nelson Mandela Award, for having the highest rise points at the end of the month because that means they were demonstrating positive values. And, again, people had said this would all seem kind of childish and silly, but mostly it worked. And, candidly, the more mature young men, at some point they would start saying things, I don't need that card. I don't need that recognition. I'm, I understand why I'm here. And I appreciate that you all are helping me develop the right skills, and you can keep your card. And that's fine. They're not going to get a card when they get out. They're not going to get a card when they're at college. But you're trying to develop habits and sort of a ways of thinking and a set of values that are going to help them be successful when they transition. I, I have been, and I suspect you have too, to a lot of conferences and meetings and discussions about um, you know, student discipline and, and about, you know, the school to prison pipeline and achievement gaps, opportunity gaps, et cetera. Um and it it is always interesting to me that there seems to be a disconnect, I think, between um education advocacy efforts and education reform efforts and what's happening in juvenile justice and, and you know, linking those two worlds should be I think a bit more natural than it has been. Um, and and you mentioned earlier the reintegration process and, you know, having that be a, a part of the school culture um, so that, you know, students who um, maybe have been in detention or in school suspension or something are, are you know, the, the team is making a concerted effort to reintegrate the students into the back into the mainstream environment. Can you talk about how education reform efforts can expand or should expand to include efforts to educate children who are inside of juvenile detention facilities? Uh, absolutely. Look, uh, look, um, you're, you're correct. There's a really big disconnect here. Um, in fact, it's uh, quite often when I go to ed reform conferences, the New Schooled Aspen Institute conference, there's a reasonably good chance that I'll be the only person there out of a thousand that's been a principal or that works with schools inside of correctional facilities. On the other hand, when I go to a conference about juvenile justice reform, it'll be predominantly advocates, mental health professionals, behavioral health professionals, and there'll be very few educators uh, uh, talking about ways to improve uh, outcomes for kids who end up in the juvenile justice system. So we, I don't mean to state the obvious, but we need to fix this and we need to get more people to, to interact and, and, and uh, work in both spaces. So my, my, the number one way to do this is that uh, the education reform movement, um, which includes some really terrific individuals and institutions with, with significant capacity could and should decide that they're going to find ways to get in, inside of youth detention facilities, youth correctional facilities, um, um, and get involved in taking our alternative ed system, which is quite haphazard and oftentimes really our throwaway schools, and um, making concerted efforts to, to improve schools in those three institutions, correctional institutions, detention institutions, and alternative placements for kids. We're having some luck with that. For example, we have a very great working relationship uh, with the New Teacher Project, which is a really high-capacity, spectacular education reform agency that is really committed to improving the quality of instruction uh, for kids 
um, all around the country, but pr- predominantly our most at-risk kids in the country. And they are excited to work with us and excited to help us improve our capacity to improve uh, the quality of instruction in the facilities we work with. And it may not be their exact sweet spot, but but they're they're again they're totally open to working with us and, and helping us and helping us develop more capacity in that area. And we're going to do a lot of that. We're going to reach out to big players in the ed reform movement and try to encourage them to get involved in this space. And I think uh, we'll see some movement in that way. Related, there are some policy challenges um, that the ed reform movement has put in place that make some of this kind of tricky and difficult. So, you know, older older teens, undercredited teens, teens teens with a long history of sort of dropping out of school and discipline problems are not necessarily attractive candidates for school districts or for high-performing public charter schools to want to absorb um, because they bring with them a lot of risks, risks of lowering your graduation rate, risks of not doing well on state-mandated tests, right, risks of of attendance and truancy problems. Um, So we need to find some ways uh, that, you know, even though tough accountability measures are are mostly improving the quality of education uh, for kids, that they don't incentivize schools to make bad decisions when it comes to reaching out to and supporting overage, undercredited, and again, sort of challenging kids to work with. And that's that's sort of a systematic policy problem that uh, th- there's no easy answer to, but, um, but there's some system solutions and some accountability solutions that would give people credit for making significant progress with kids based on where they come in and where they end up. And if their attendance improves significantly, if their reading scores improve measurably, if um, they go on ultimately to graduate, even if even if many years later, those are those, we now have enough data capacity to manage those and to look at those levers, and to reward schools who are doing well in, the, in that regard, even if um, even if some some standard measures they're not doing as well as other schools might. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely think it's important that education reform, um, you know be willing to embrace best practices wherever those practices may originate and um and reside and you know thinking about um reintegration and school culture and other things i think are just across the board best practices that should be shared um you know no matter where we're we're advocating or or working in education um i wonder if you would just briefly talk about how you engage families and parents of students who are incarcerated and and uh, engage them in the educational process in particular? Uh, sure. Uh, before I do that, I should just go back real briefly on this issue of reintegration. There are, mm-hmm. are, are some other sort of policy reform work that could be done. So, so in some states, um, kids that are coming out of a juvenile facility due to the nature of their offense um, are forced into what are called disciplinary schools or of these formal alternative schools, which almost inevitably are low performers and, and sort of places, throwaway places. In some states, school districts and principals have, have way too much flexibility in saying yes or no to, to kids coming back from juvenile facilities. And, and these are places where if the only person advocating for that to change um, are the institutions representing kids coming out of correctional institutions, it's hard, it's hard to change that lever. But if the broader education reform movement suggests that those sorts of laws and policies don't jive with an ed reform community that's committed to helping all kids succeed, 
not just most kids succeed, then the advocacy push to change those laws and to change the the, the admissions practices and uh, uh, for principals and superintendents would would slowly break down, and we'd have a lot better chance to get more of our kids into high-performing schools where they might be successful as compared to going to throwaway schools uh, where no one cares about them. Um, but let's get back to you. So that's, that's just a rejoinder on the how could the ed reform movement help on the reintegration effort. On the, on the parents and family front, again, this is a really tricky one, and it's a little bit state by state, but let's talk policy and then let's talk uh, nuts and bolts. At a policy level, one of the problems is that in many states, um, let's say, uh, you know, you and I, we live in Philadelphia, and we're adjudicated delinquent um, in Philadelphia, in many states, depending on the nature of the offense, um, potentially sort of a, a thoughtful or sometimes not so thoughtful analysis about what some of the underlying issues affecting you are, you might end up getting shipped way out to western Pennsylvania. Um, but let's say you have a um, sort of your diagnosis having a substance abuse problem. It's, it's possible the state says, well, we're going to send you way out to western Pennsylvania because that's the treatment center for all for all kids who have had who we believe have serious drug treatment problems. That almost inevitably, if you're, it makes it very very hard for the school or the institution now to have effective strategies of staying in touch with your parents and for your parents to stay in touch with you because you're now doing nine, 18 months, 300 miles from your home. So at a policy level, one of the one of the issues is we need to push on the JJ reform side, not the ed reform side, to have more kids stay closer to home. Um, generally, a lot, lot fewer kids need to go lock, get locked up, period. But if they do, we need to really push states to look harder at this issue of taking kids in and then sending them all around the state based on a perceived treatment need, as compared to saying for the vast majority of these young men and women, we need to keep them if we're going to put them in secure facilities, they need to be in secure facilities that are very close to where they live, and those facilities need to have the capacity to help them address their most pressing underlying sort of uh, behavioral, mental health, academic needs. So that's at a policy level, and in the absence of that, it's really hard to work with parents. That means that as a school, um, again, with technology and just some basic commitment, you can really do well on this. Um, Again, just going back to at the Maya Angelou Academy, you know, every month a parent gets a progress report. Every time a kid gets an award, they get a copy of that award. They get a photograph of their kid getting an award on stage. Um, all those things make parents feel like they're engaged, they're valued. And for many parents who've seen their kids get kicked out of, fail out of, right, get in fights at school, this is a really special chance for them to get acknowledgement and get information about their student doing well. So that's sort of one, is you have to build a communication strategy sort of into how you do business, even though you're not in the community. But then related to that, just like you would in any other school, I mean, I'm a high school principal at a, a Maya Angelou School in D.C., or I'm a high school principal at the Maya Angelou Academy 30 miles outside of D.C., as a high school principal, my job is to communicate with parents when kids are doing well, when kids are not doing well. Um, my job of my social workers, my clinicians, my advocates, again, is to reach out to parents just like you would be reaching out to parents if you were not, if you were at a community school. So 
in these settings, on the one hand, the, the, the local parent is, is the team of people that run the kid's residential, right, wherever the kid is staying at night, that pod or um, their dorm. But in a bigger picture, they, they have parents and they have guardians uh, who are in the community. And, and when you're running a school inside of a secure facility, you have to do both those at once. You have to, on a day-to-day basis, yes, be communicating very closely with the people who are supervising the young men and women in the evenings. But you also have to realize that they're not their parents, and you need to build relationships with, with family members, mostly, again, through phone, email, other forms of communication, so that as the kid gets ready to be released, um, you have communication and you have relationships built up with families. Mm-hmm. And, and that certainly goes back to the, the earlier message about positive interventions and, and incentives that, you know, eventually the incentives themselves fall away, but the, the, the students have been guided on the right path, and, and including their families and parents in that is really, I would imagine, very helpful and, and um, could only um, improve situations for children and for the educators who are, who are serving them. Absolutely. So, uh, David Domenici is the Executive Director of the Center for Educational Excellence in Alternative Settings. You can find them online at www.ceeas.org and on Facebook and Twitter. You are now officially certified know-it-alls on what we must begin to do to develop healthy student discipline practices for every one of our children. Remember to follow Know It All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook and read my blog at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Thank you, David, for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Allison. And thanks to you, all of our listeners. Have a wonderful week.